Well, hi there, and welcome to another episode of Listen with Cheryl McKay. You can find some information and links on my website, which is CherylMcKay.com, and you can sign up there for my newsletter. I am so happy to be carrying on with my work in this format after decades in radio, mainly because I love to listen. I love hearing people's stories. My guest today has many stories, his own and stories from his ancestors, and he tells them in many different ways, in songs, in dance, and primarily with his visual art. Good Sanglans, Robert Davidson, is known internationally for his artwork, his carving on masks and totem poles, his jewelry, and for his paintings and his prints. Robert Davidson is of Haida and Tlingit descent, and since the early 60s has been instrumental in the revival of Haida art and culture. You'll hear a bit about this in the conversation, uh, mainly about a really significant moment in that journey. That's a pole he worked on that was raised in Old Masset in the late 60s, and it's a story that moves me every time I hear it. There's a show of Robert Davidson's paintings and prints on now at the Vancouver Art Gallery until later in April. It's called A Line That Bends But Does Not Break. The show contains works that really illustrate his profound knowledge of Haida art traditions and, of course, his innovations as well. There is also a book created in association with the exhibit. It's titled Echoes of the Supernatural, and it's created in collaboration with Gary Wyatt. I have always so much enjoyed my opportunities to talk to Robert Davidson, his knowledge, his perspective, his wisdom, and, of course, his wonderful sense of humor. started the conversation by asking him what it was like for him when he went into the gallery in the Vancouver Art Gallery as the show was hung for the first time, and he was seeing works, many of which he hadn't seen in decades. When I look at those pieces, it's true. Like, they're documenting my experience. Does something come to mind right now, something that was recently spurred or, or twigged when you were in the gallery? The first part of the um, show or the exhibition is my very early work. And all those prints, they're pencil drawings. I had to visualize the color from those pencil lines. After 81, I started to paint on drums and I, I was amazed on how much more spontaneous painting is compared to those pencil drawings I was doing. When I'm painting, I'm making adjustments. Whereas with the pencil drawings, if I made any adjustments, I would have to erase a whole, you know, two or three days worth of work. Right, right. The exhibition also brackets that time period. And people say, okay, what will be next? And sometimes I get annoyed with that question. But that brings me back to a story with Sarah, my daughter, when she was about three years old. Uh, she was in my studio drawing, and I was there painting. And she said, how come you don't paint for fun? Because <laughs> 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 she's drawing, you know, doing a painting, uh, one or two for ten minutes. And I'm busy calculating one line. <laughs> she could see that. <laughs> Why don't you paint for fun? So. All of what I've been doing has been for fun, but now I want to do it for extra fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
What will that be like, I wonder? Well, it, it's, it will be a, a place where I don't have to analyze. Mm. Like right now, I've been doing painting where I'm not analyzing, but because I found myself analyzing during or sometimes not after, because there's always a question, what is it? What are you saying here? So sometimes I get annoyed with that because I feel, okay, uh, it's up to the viewer to see what's going on. Challenge the viewer to come up with their own analysis. And so if you free yourself to have the extra fun, does, is that going to be putting, like you say, more, more onus, more responsibility then on the viewer, more freedom on the viewer? Yeah, like, like Northwest Coast Art, the vocabulary is the ovoid and U-shape. And there are 10,000 variations of those two alphabets. At this point in my career, I feel comfortable in working within those two shapes. Like I feel very much like the old masters huh. must have felt. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of my uncle, my aunt and uncle. When I was visiting, my aunt was teasing my uncle, saying, when your uncle talks Haida, sometimes I think he's just making it up because I don't understand what he's saying. And he said, you're allowed to. Huh. So with that story, I said, okay, with this experience I have, I'm allowed to create new new story. When did you realize that, Robert? That has been developing for a while. In 1980, I hosted a, a four-day feast in Masset called Tribute to the Living Haida. I was asking for guidance from the elders, and my questions went beyond that experience. And one of the elders said, we're going to follow you because you know what to do. What was it like to hear that? Um, scary. Yeah. <laughs> because I came from a place where there was no talk about our culture. The first time I heard a Haida song was when I was 16. Mm. And then I learned about our clan system when I was 22. So there was no talk about any of that. That reminds me of one time, one of the performances, early performances, after learning about our songs and dances, my grandfather carved a paddle which was split in the blade, and it was actually a clapper. And my grandmother said, I want to use that paddle. And she grabbed the paddle and, and clapped it all the way around the, the community hall before we started our, our performance. And I said, what was that all about? And she said, I don't know, I just made it up. <laughs> <laughs> so we were not stagnant. We were continually evolving. But that evolution came from knowledge. My grandparents' generation, oh, I was so blessed with Nani and Chini, my grandparents, they hosted all the elders in the village before the pole was being raised in 1969. And each elder got, got up to speak. And it was all in Haida. Mm. I didn't speak the language. So I sat with my uncle who translated for me. And they were all talking about 
history. They were talking about the process of ceremony for the pole raising. I know there was a lot of fear because the laws that, that governed us, we would have been put in jail for what was happening right then. And some of the elders were afraid that it was going to happen. But I didn't know that and until later on. That the Indian agent, he lived in New Masset, which was three miles apart from the Haida village. And so he ruled the village by the laws that were governing who we were and what we were able to do and not do. That pole raising, every time I think of or read about or that pole raising, it just, it takes my breath away, Robert. That That's such a precise moment where things changed so much. And it was, like you say, you you were kind of doing it without really understanding in a lot of ways what you were doing. Yeah, I still get emotional on it. Mm-hmm. You know, like when I saw the... Um, the video uh, documenting that moment and to see some of those elders and they were wearing paper headpieces and there's a photo of my grandfather using a toy drum. Because the the other things were all gone. It was all gone. There was no art in the village. Nothing left. In fact, I, I went knocking on every door in the village seen what had survived and I found one storage box and I I know I couldn't have done that without knowing what my ancestors created that was still stored in museums when you think about that moment now and and like you say it's still it's so emotional what do you think about it now that you couldn't understand then I feel I was at a right moment like I was at the right moment to to help Chinny, my grandfather, to make that connection with him and then later on with my grandmother after Chinny died. And also my uncles. They would pull me aside when I was <laughs> being a teenager. <laughs> okay, Robert. Um, so they would give me guidance. A lot of times I thought they were bawling me out, but really... They wanted to see me succeed. So when I look back at those days, those, that, that moment, they were giving me guidance. And, and same with Nani. She said to always help the old people, which I did. In helping them, I had a connection with them. There was one blind lady. She had a woodshed and then her house here, and the trail went between her woodshed and the house. And when Periodically, I, she would be in the woodshed chopping wood. She would feel where the wood is and swing the axe. And, and I said, do you need help? <laughs> and I was scared. Who are you? I said, Robert. Oh, she could get excited. And I would chop the wood for her and I'd pack it in. And so there was these moments. And also another moment was there were elders in this house and like I would go and visit certain of the elders and just to say hello and there were there were a bunch of them in this living room but I didn't realize till later that they were having a church meeting Mm. that's the moment I said okay I want to carve a totem pole so they can celebrate one more time in a way they knew how and once I made the commitment the doors started opening up to, to, for it to happen. 
And that was the first pole that had been raised in Old Masset in, yeah. since the 1800s sometime? Yeah, my grandfather was born in 1880, my grandmother in 1895. And I asked her if, she, if, if there were every, any pole raisings in their lifetime, and she said no. I know it all had to do with the laws. We couldn't celebrate the potlatch bands. And, yeah, yeah, we couldn't celebrate. So a lot of a lot of our history survived through Christmas dinners or weddings. Hmm. Um, the Christmas dinners, my grandmother, my grandparents, they would host 80 people in their living room. They would talk and, and keep our history alive through these dinners or feasts. Which were then safely labeled a Christmas dinner. Yeah. Safely from the legal perspective. Yeah. Like after we were able to celebrate publicly, there's no no longer need for those Christmas dinners. Huh. They're not there anymore. Interesting, eh? It's innate. Like I'm at that point in my life where I want to give all this information out. Like I want it to survive, my experience to survive, because I'm I would be like a really runner. I'm holding a mm. baton. And now I want that baton to be handed over to the next generation. And that's what your grandparents were, were thinking too? I, I feel that's true because the knowledge, it had to jump over to their grandparents' generation mm -hmm. because their children were kidnapped and taken to residential schools. I didn't understand that until after my dad died. I had no idea on the experience he must have went through being yanked from the family life as children. Like, I couldn't imagine when Sarah and Ben were born that they would be taken away from us. I, I couldn't imagine that. And then years later, we would see them, and then we, we would be strangers. Right. So it took my dad a long time to reconnect culturally because of that experience. And, and when he did reconnect, he was solid. And he wanted the children to know the songs. He wanted the children to know the dances. And him and Sarah, his second wife, made sure that they, they created a building so that they could teach those children the song and dances. And it's like, there's a quote of yours in the book talking about art as a, a catalyst, as a, as a magnet, and as a, an impulse or a way to achieve the common good. Yeah, the art... It, it's like a trigger point. Oh, yeah, right, okay. They see this image. They remember the story. And that reminds me of there was a dispute, cannery dispute in Masset between the workers and uh, the cannery owner. There was a lot of telegrams back and forth between the union and the cannery owner. And after it was all settled, my dad carved an archlight totem pole and on the bottom was the Haida, and in the hands they were holding a, like a plaque. And my dad said that those are the telegrams. <laughs> and I loved it that he brought the art up, up to date with that argillite pole and with the present day story. Robert, when did the two-dimensional work become part of, of your practice? What started that? That started with, for the pole raising, some of the elders wanted blanket designs. So I started to create their crest. Some lady said, I want a killer whale with three fins on it, or I want an eagle, or I want a 
a raven like that. And so I would create these crests. Was there kind of an explosion of requests at that point? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because there was no art. Very few blankets, very few button blankets. See, the art went into a very dark period. The last documented great artist was Charles Edenshaw. He died in 1920. And then there was this long period, and then Bill Reed comes along, uh, Wilson Duff, Bill Holm, and they started to look at and analyze the art of the old masters. They were able to break the code. My learning from, from Chinny and my dad, their learning came from fuzzy photographs of a book that was published by the National Museum because there was no evidence of our art in the village. So they were learning from these photographs of orgelite poles that were in storage in, in Ottawa. When I came to Vancouver, I was blown away to see a real finely carved argillite from the old masters. So that dark period, there was a thin thread with, I think, about four or five of the old gentlemen carving argillite in Massip, and the same is true in Skidigan. Mm. They held the torch, and from those people I learned from, from them because I went to visit them. I wanted to see how they carved and see what they, they were doing. When I was 22, that's when I learned about the, the clans in Masset. I had no idea. Nobody talked about it because of how we were brought up. When I learned about that and learning about the crests from each clan, and I learned that from the town chief. He was in the hospital at the St. Paul's Hospital, and I went to visit him with my tape recorder, and that's when he told me about all the, the plans. I can't imagine how, how that must have been to realize that there was this whole body of knowledge that you were just tapping into. Yeah, it, it was very exciting. Like, I, I still study the, the relationships. I can talk about the grandchildren. I can trace their lineage through their mother's mother. Like, it used to be where I'd say, who's your mother? And I could trace their, their clan name, and now I have to say, who's your grandmother? <laughs> <laughs> when I look at work of yours, some that's happening really close together in time, and some has such intricate detail, and, and like line within line, other pieces have that, that like suggestion almost. It's interesting that the two coexist, the two ways of making. Right now, today, when, when I'm designing, I'll, I'll do a doodle, 10 seconds to a minute. Then I'll move on to another one. I don't get stuck on that one. So I'll go maybe 20, and then sometimes I'll go back and look at what I've, crea what I've doodled, and I'll just change a couple of lines, and I say, okay, that works. Huh. So that's, that's where I'm at right now. And when I say looser, maybe that's the wrong way to say it, but from my eye, it looks like there are fewer things happening that I can see. Yeah, I, I did an experiment uh, where I did one painting. I said, how few lines can I use and it still looks Haida? So I, I was right down to two lines. Huh. Which one of those... It's not in the show, unfortunately. Two lines. Yeah. Is that having lots of fun? Is that extra fun? Oh, yeah. That, 
But that comes after 10,000 hours of practice. Like I couldn't have done that uh, 20 years ago. Very much like I heard Kobe, Kobe Bryant, shooting 500 baskets before, before a game. So when I'm, when I'm painting, I'm fine-tuning my experience. I think I, just when you mentioned that, it reminded me too of something that I think it was your grandfather had said when you were starting with print making and was encouraging you, even if people aren't buying them, just keep making, keep practicing. Yeah, keep working. Yeah. He said, even when you don't have orders, keep working. And also, I feel parenting has a lot to do with it. Hmm. Because I, I remember being really lazy, just a kid wanting to play, but my dad, he insisted I, I earn my own way. I commend him for all those times that I was not too happy about what he was telling me what to do. Like, for example, my teacher, when I was 15, he invited me to, Van to Vancouver in 1962, and it took me a long time to ask my dad for permission. I finally got the, built up the courage. Dad, uh, uh, my teacher invited me to Vancouver. Is it okay? And he said, yes, it's okay, but you have to earn $200. <laughs> <laughs> So I wanted... And this was in 69? 62. 62, okay. No mean feat. No, I was 15 years old. And, and I was just still learning to carve. And he said, um, okay, that, but that brings me into another thinking where the mind has so much power. Mm. Make your mind strong. The minute he said that, I held that $200 in my mind. I was able to raise $170. A few days before I was scheduled to go to Vancouver, the owner of the cannery stopped me. He said, would you like a job for two days? And at that time, it was $15 a day. <laughs> <laughs> your extra $30. <laughs> so... When I look back, the, the, the visualization was the, the door opener. Is that still something that you do? That's something that's, that I still do. Whenever I have doubt, then it doesn't work. The minute I have doubt, it's, I'm cut off. <laughs> so you've got to be really careful. So once you tap into that knowledge, you, you walk a straight line. How do you fend off doubt, though? I mean, it must... It must want to come in sometimes. It does come in all the time. Yeah. And we have a, a supernatural being called Degus Onawa. Degus Onawa is a supernatural being that's there to test your strength. Hmm. So whenever that doubt comes in, Degus Onawa is smiling at me. When you mentioned that, it, it, made, it brought to mind you and your brother, I think it was you and your brother Reg, driving somewhere in Haida Gwaii, and the wind coming in, and the foam on the, on the shore, which is a story that you tell yeah. as part of this book. The stories are so alive at home. The stories are, are from the land. I knew about foam woman, but I never thought of what foam woman looked like. And there was a storm, and there was foam blowing over the road. I said, hey, that's foam, woman. 
So I was so excited, and that inspired a, a painting. Same with the wind, mm -hmm. southeast wind has ten brothers. The brothers are different, the different strengths of the wind. When southeast wind is illustrated, it's in the form of a killer whale. Huh. So southeast wind lives under the ocean. Southeast wind is a wind I love, and I also am challenged by it. When I was a teenager, when I had a bicycle, I like to, to ride the bike from the village to Newmass. It, it's all gravel road. And if, when I'm coming from the village and going to Newmass, when the southeast wind is blowing, I'm going against the wind. So I'm sometimes very angry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going against the wind, but when I'm going home, I'm sailing home. <laughs> This is my conversation with artist Robert Davidson. And just before we wrapped up, I asked him about one particular piece in the show called Raven Stretched Out. Yeah, that, that is a statement on, on exploitation of natural resources where, like, there's no, there's no tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And it's, we have to find a, a better way to govern ourselves so that our grandchildren and their grandchildren have the same pleasures we have today. There should be a law against people having more than a billion dollars, for example. What do you can do with all that money? There, yeah, there's another one. When is enough? enough. When is enough enough? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I could say that about myself also. You know, I have about... 35 shirts. <laughs> <laughs> now, Robert, when is enough? <laughs> enough shirts, enough. <laughs> so, in order to buy another shirt, I have to give one up. Okay. That's been a policy for a long time. That's a very nice one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is hard, isn't it, to extract ourselves from that mindset? Yeah, it, it is. Especially when you get emotionally attached to it. Mm -hmm. And that's... Sometimes I get emotionally attached to a creation, so I will hang on to it for a while. And then when I, when I feel it's time to let it go, then I'll either give it away or phone the gallery and say, I am this for sale. Is there anything you haven't been able to give up ever? Yeah, there's several pieces I've had since 1980. Huh. Yeah, but, but I'm ready to let it go. Huh. It's, it's time to, for the, public to see it and also enjoy it. But then I have an emotional attachment to it. <laughs> I know, I'm just watching your face change. Maybe I'm not ready. <laughs> you hanging on as it goes out? <laughs> no, actually I learned that from Chinny. Yeah? About letting go. Hmm. In 1969, when we were moving the totem pole from where Reg and I carved it to the site where it was to be raised, I was helping them pull it on, on rollers. And Chinny was there, he said, he poked me with the cane, he had a cane. He said, Robert, that totem pole doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to them. So I stood back and let it go. Was that hard? No, no, it, it made me realize my job was done. Huh. Was it like a flash then? It was like, yeah, oh. It, it just, just like that. I just backed off. Such wisdom. He was amazing. 
I don't want to ask you what you're going to do next because you don't want to. <laughs> but what are you doing right now? What have you got on the on the go right now? I'm I'm working. Actually, I'm I'm wanting to work in a place where I don't have to explain myself. So, whatever comes out, that comes from my experience. Often, that experience could be from a learning I had from my uncle non-engineer or my dad and mother, or even being witness at a potlatch. Quite often, my inspiration comes from the void. What do you mean? When I hosted the potlatch in 81, it, it was Children of the Good People was the title, and I invited the village to use this time to give names to their children and grandchildren. The reason for that is I had kept hearing from the elders, we're losing our names. So that's the void, to create the occasion for the names to be handed down. And so the inspiration, like you say, often still comes from that. It comes yeah. from the people. Yeah. It comes from my witness, witnessing what is happening. A painting I did downstairs uh, that's in the show is what will be left for our grandchildren. And that has to do with the over-harvesting. It's called har- harvesting, now it's not called logging. What, what trees will be left for my grandchildren to carve a totem pole? Am I the last generation that will enjoy that moment? Robert, I can't tell you how grateful I am to have this time with you. Thank you so much. Well, I really enjoy this. You're the trigger for a lot of my stories. So thank you. And that's my conversation with Robert Davidson. You can see that show of his work on right now, his graphic work at the Vancouver Art Gallery. The show is called A Line That Bends But Does Not Break. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of Listen with Cheryl McKay. And you can always get more information on my website, which is CherylMcKay.com. Talk to you next week. Bye for now.